0: The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston.
1: Let us pray. Gracious God, as we listen together for you, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer, amen. This fall here at Fifth Avenue Church, we are considering together what it means to curate your heart. Our aim in this is first to talk about jettisoning, getting rid of destructive and unhealthy habits that have latched on to our souls that we have come to see as being normal. Last week we talked about anger. And once we get rid of those sort of things, not easy, our goal is to talk about finding good things, godly touchstones, sacred commitments to replace uh, those uh, things that we've gotten rid of. This morning, our guide on this journey is Psalm 42. Listen now for God's word to you as it echoes uh, to us from these ancient lines of poetry. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again Praise him, my help, and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. All my life, I've been around praying people. I grew up listening to Midwestern prayers, Lutheran prayers, farmers' prayers, Prayers asking for rain to come or for it, please, to stop. The prayers I heard as a youth typically began in a quiet, formal, bow your head, deferential manner. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we beseech you. When I came east, To attend Divinity School, I started to hear prayers that deviated from the strict patterns of my youth. The prayers spoken in the chapel at Yale and in the churches of New York City were poetic. They were colorful and grand. They reached across the breadth of scripture to find the many different ways in which people have addressed the holy. God who cares for all of your flock like a Mother Hen gathering her chicks under her wings, we pray to you. Ministering in the South, the prayers I witnessed often took on a chatty tone. They mirrored the cadence of beloved preachers like Billy Graham, a man who often told people that prayer was simply a conversation with God. Southern prayers often begin with one word, respectful address and then get down to business. Lord, I have something heavy on my heart today. Lord, I want to thank you for... The religious communities that first nurtured us seep into our souls. They flavor our beliefs and color the way that we pray. In fact, I think you can tell where a person grew up by listening to how they begin a prayer. Take Californians, for example. I've never lived in California, but I work with a lot of people who have roots there. Charlene Han Powell, Werner Ramirez, Chris Romine. Californians at prayer have a conversational tone that's sort of like their Southern brothers and sisters, but Californians are, if anything, less formal. They approach God with a sort of relaxed beach boys like affection. (laughs) If a person begins a prayer, God, we just love you so much. I would put good money on that person having roots in California. Now, admittedly, the first time I ever heard a Californian pronounce their love for the Almighty in this way, it made me uncomfortable. In the community in Minnesota where I grew up, among faithful but stoic Scandinavians, it was difficult to imagine anyone saying in public, out loud, I love you so much to another person. To convey that sort of affection toward the ground of all being was, for my people, inconceivable. God deserves respect, devotion, dignified praise. Love was far too fluffy and unreliable an emotion to lay at the feet of the Almighty. That's the way I used to think. Time, however, has tempered my criticism, time, and scripture. It was Jesus, after all, who summarized the teaching of all the law and the prophets by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Now, now given that Jesus puts loving God at the the very top of our to-do list as the faithful, you might argue that we should all start our prayers with, God, we just love you so much. But does that really settle it for you? At home, whenever someone talks to our dog, Fergus, he will tilt his head first one way, and then the other. It's the cutest thing. Fergus, want to go for a walk? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> it's his way of trying to assess the situation, to figure out what's going on. This human is talking to me. What is she saying? What does this mean? Some of us, maybe even most of us, if we're honest, might tilt our heads when a prayer begins, God, we love you so much. What? what What is Jesus asking us to do when he says the first and greatest commandment is to love God with every fiber of our being? How can a person love God? What does that mean to engage this question? A question that is, I think, absolutely central to our faith. We're going to start today by doing a little spiritual house cleaning, just like we did last week. We're going to consider some of the obstacles that stand between us and the sort of love we hear about in today's psalm. My my soul thirsts for the living God. And, And after addressing these obstacles, don't worry, we will turn to the question, what might loving God look like for me and for you? So obstacle number one, are you kidding? I'm not going to love that God. Have you ever listened to someone, maybe even someone in your own family, somebody at a party, say to you, I don't believe in a God who would give people cancer. I don't believe in a God who condemns gay people to hell. I don't believe in a God who turns a blind eye to the poor. And I certainly don't believe in the God reflected in the mean-spirited statements uttered by today's televangelists. I've been in that conversation before, more than once, and my response is usually, yep, I don't believe in that God either. But these conversations make me wonder, why, when people utterly reject the credibility of televangelists, are they still willing to let them describe God? At the heart of our faith, there is a deep and beautiful tradition that engages a loving God who is so much bigger and more interesting and more challenging than the deity people so casually describe and then dismiss at cocktail parties. Learning to love God requires that you actually get to know God. It involves an expenditure of time and effort, study and prayer. And and I know this bothers some folk. Wait, they say, shouldn't love be easy? Can't you just tell us a story, preacher, and suddenly our hearts will turn and we'll have a warm and lasting glow here that will connect us with our creator? If only it were that easy. And that brings us to obstacle number two. Why isn't it easy? People often let me know in subtle and somewhat embarrassed tones that they don't want to have to work at faith. They imply that religion should be there, waiting for you to need it. Religion at its best, they will explain to me, looks like a church throwing its doors open on 9-11 and welcoming crowds into a safe and sacred place faith ought to be a a fire extinguisher a, a life preserver a place where you can go when everything is falling apart and what's wrong with that nothing at first glance faith is all of those things a fire extinguisher a life preserver a place you can go when everything's falling apart it really is but here's the thing when we restrict that to God's entire portfolio, when we only turn to God when things are falling apart, our faith gets kind of weird. One of my former colleagues used to call this approach to belief the pooper scooper God. Now, for those of you who did not grow up experiencing small town parades, let me explain. In the 4th of July parades of my youth, there were tractors and fire engines and floats for the American Legion. There were also horses and ponies and occasionally a pair of oxen pulling a wagon. Immediately after each of the sets of animals passed by, a cavorting clown would come dancing his way down Main Street with a shovel and a bucket. These fellows were there, well, just in case manure were to happen. They called themselves the Pooper Scoopers. Sometimes we put God in that role. God's the one running along behind us, ready to clean up the little messes and the big ones. God will help you find your lost keys, and God will take your panic calls when life has turned upside down. Now, let me be clear. Again, I'm not saying God isn't there for you in hard times. God is. God has great comfort to offer the suffering. God has tremendous hope to offer the discouraged, This is true, but it is a truth that is part of a bigger truth. God, my friends, wants more than the damaged parts of your heart. God wants all of you. To experience God, the real God, the God Jesus introduces us to, you have to make a commitment. You have to go all in. You have to hang out with God. You have to seek God on on great days and cruddy days and just plain ordinary ones too. And if that sounds sort of like uh, marriage, it is. In joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, the real God is not content to be your pooper scooper. The real God first time that's ever been said in this sanctuary. (laughs) The real God, poor Bryant Kirkland, the real God wants a relationship, a reciprocal relationship with you. Of course, as any psychologist will tell you, having a real relationship means we have to have bandwidth to focus on the other. And that brings us to obstacle number three. We are a distracted people. I could spend the rest of this sermon listing the things that distract us from God. And by the way, from each other. The things that clamor for space in our hearts and push our relationships to the side. There are the typical sins like greed. Oh, I'll make time for God and my family once I've made enough money. Pride. Oh, I'm too sophisticated, too smart to spend time on this God thing. Lust. As I wrote in the Friday email, St. Augustine confessed that there was a season in his life when he was too much of a player to have time for God. He famously prayed, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. But rather than continue this list, I want to pause there with St. Augustine. Instead of ticking off all the seven deadly sins, I want to notice something about Augustine's prayer. The good bishop sees sin, not so much as a corrupting force, but as a distraction. Sin is something that draws our attention away from God. It engages us in ways that seem to our hearts worthwhile or or even fun but sin sucks up our bandwidth and prevents us from seeing important stuff. A year ago my son Oliver and his best buddy Alexander came home from school excited to tell me about a psychological experiment that had been conducted at Harvard University by Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabri. In this experiment, subjects are asked to watch a short video, like a 25 second video, in which six people, three of them are wearing white t-shirts, three of them are wearing black t-shirts, are passing basketballs around. And while watching the video, each subject is asked to silently count the number of passes made by the people in the white t-shirts. The video begins, the people start passing the ball, viewers start counting, and then something surprising happens. A man in a gorilla suit strolls into the middle of the circle of people passing the ball, faces the camera, pounds on his chest, and then leaves. The gorilla is on screen for nine of the 20-some seconds. Now, after the video is over, the psychologist asks each viewer two questions. First, how many passes did the team in white make? Answer, 15. Second, did you see the gorilla? Over 50% of the people who watch this video answer, what gorilla? I often hear people say, how can I love something, pastor, that I cannot see? Seeing is believing. Show me God and and I'll consider this faith thing. They explain, I'm convinced that God, pastor, is at best hidden or more likely, let's be honest, non-existent. In this, people fail to consider another possibility. Could it be That they are simply too distracted to notice God, the invisible gorilla in their midst. Mary Mary Oliver has a short poem that I think gets at this. The poem is entitled Praying. Here's how it goes. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a, a few small stones. Just pay attention. Then patch together a few words and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest but a doorway into thanks and and a silence in which another voice might speak. Pay attention, says Mary Oliver. To fall in love is to pay attention. It's to notice the other. It's to notice what makes another person unique and and interesting and captivating. My wife Amy and I have been married for almost 30 years. Falling in love with Amy was hand-holding and walks on the beach and a kiss in a Burger King parking lot but it was also looking at her bookshelf and seeing all the volumes of Shakespeare there. It was noticing the Delta Blues records on her turntable. It was taking inventory of the dozens of Katherine Hepburn videos stacked up next to the TV. Falling in love is paying attention to the other. Now, what does that mean when it comes to God? I have two suggestions and uh, then I'm done. Falling in love with God, just like falling in love with any other person or thing, requires commitment and it requires bandwidth. To fall in love with God, to, to learn to pray like a Californian, requires that we get ourselves to a place where we can really listen. And it helps if we approach that doorway to love, knowing that we don't have all the answers. A little humility helps. It also helps if we are able to distance ourselves from other voices, if we can seek out, yes, silence, or, or something a lot like silence. There's a fabulous line in today's psalm deep calls to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. To my ear, this is one of scripture's most beautiful verses, but but what does it mean? Well, basically, the background to today's text is a story of struggle. You, You heard it in the passage. The psalmist has been looking for, but not finding God. Tears, she says, have been her food day and night. So, she goes out into the wilderness, out to the place where Moses talked to God. She, she hikes through the desert to the mountains, and there, standing next to a waterfall, a cataract, she hears something. Deep calls to deep. Now, when you think about it, the psalmist's claim seems almost ridiculous, If you've stood next to a big waterfall, a really big waterfall, you know that it's tremendous thunder obliterates all other sound. How could she hear anything? But I think that's precisely the psalmist's point. As tons of water pour down, pounding against stone, her mind clears, she's stepped into an ancient isolation tank and, and At this place, in this space, no other voices can speak. Everything is just thunder and and more thunder. And then, plunging her thirsty soul into the roaring sheets of water, the psalmist hears something. Deep calls to deep. Deep calls to deep. The thrum of the deep, true trustworthy voice at the heart of the cosmos reaches her. Here is the one that she's been searching for, no longer distracted. God's voice becomes clear. It's a moment she will cherish forever. It's love. She writes, at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Now, can I promise you that if you travel out to Mount Mizar deep in the land of Jordan and find yourself a massive waterfall to stand under, that you will be met there by God and that you will fall in love? (laughs) No. No one can make that promise. But still there is something I can say to you with certainty something I suspect you already know. Your heart thirsts for an encounter like that. Your soul longs for it. And this longing, when we listen to it, when we give it space and credibility, when we give it permission to chase after waterfalls and to carve out places of silence, when we allow it to pay attention to stones and weeds, this longing will guide you. When you let your heart search for what it wants, what it really, really wants, well then, my friends, at any moment, there's a chance that you'll find yourself falling into the arms of infinity. This is the one windmill in life worth tilting after. When you let your thirsty soul head for water, there will always be a chance, standing in the cataract, that you will discover, as Werner puts it, that you are deeply, deeply loved. There is a chance that you will want to love this one back with all your heart and soul and mind, there's a chance you will find yourself falling to your knees and ridiculously praying, God, I just love you so much. Go from this place to serve thee whom we adore, trusting in the love of God in the grace of our Lord Jesus and clinging to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. 3 one. Thank you and God bless.